0: Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. So, uh, good evening everyone. I'm not going to talk about uh, Israel or about Islamophobia or about terrorism tonight. I might mention things which are sort of related, but I'm going to talk specifically about what I've entitled disembedded elites. I want to make an argument about the importance of policy communications for sociology in general and actually for understanding the world at all. Uh, And I want to do that by looking at uh, a number of different sorts of policy communications and how they have changed over the last 20 or 30 years. Let me um, explain a little bit about the background to such a study, and I I want to do that by starting with um, a well-known sociological book, The Power Elite and everyone has to use the photograph of C. Wright Mills on his motorbike. You can't use any other kind of photograph. Uh, where C. Wright Mills diagnosed the interpenetration of three networks of power, political, economic and military. Now, one can say a lot of things about that book, uh, and I've given you a little quote from it there, um, and one can criticise what he wrote or uh, update it or uh, talk about whether he was right to uh, propose that the military were so important or whether one should have focused more on class. There's a whole big debate about that. But one can't uh, debate, really, the the seminal importance of this book for the whole sociology, and in particular for sociologists who are interested in power and how it is distributed or not through the society. It's been a a very influential book, but it's waxed and waned in terms of its influence. If you look at the citations of it uh, down the, the decades, you can see that citations doubled between 1965 and 69, and 70, and 74. But then it was another 20 years following the kind of explosion of radical sociology of the early uh, 70s before it was, became something you would cite routinely again. And this is uh, when, when we get past the, the phase of uh, what was even called sometimes insurgent sociology, uh, uh, as you can see from the, the covers of the. Famous journal Insurgent Sociologist, now known as Critical Sociology. So it's waxed and waned, it's become, it went out of fashion, um, and it's, I think we, one can argue, it's become more fashionable now again, but only a little more fashionable. And, and I think we, wh- what we might think about if we're interested in power is thinking back to Mills and the legacy that he leaves for an engagement uh, with the way in which power shapes our society. Now, To leap forward several decades, I want to start my talk really by talking about um, a recent study. Uh, I'm kind of skipping over the entire history of power structure research, which I'm sure you'll forgive, to to go to this study from 2011, published in PLOS One. I've given you some quotes here from a summary of the paper, rather than from the paper itself. And that's where this um, image comes from, which was on the press release for the lecture. Uh, this image is based on the analysis in the paper by the um, business scientists from the Swiss, Fed, Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zürich. And they pre- performed uh, an analysis of um, 43,060 transnational corporations and their links with each other, and they're not not just through board interlocks as you would expect with power structure research, but also in terms of shareholding uh, links. And they, they've shown in their paper... can discuss it, uh, the way in which 295 of the transnational corporations control 38% of the total operating revenue of 43,060 TNCs worldwide. And the finding that 0.7% of TNCs control nearly 40% of TNC income depicts a concentration of control that's wholly unanticipated according to the the summary which is written by a professor of politics from Cardiff. Now, I, I don't want to go to the stake over the data in this paper pretty good it seems to me but I'm not a big data person uh, but nevertheless I think what we need to, to do in relation to this kind of uh, analysis is to look at what that tells us about the changing pattern of corporate co- control and compare that with what, what Mills was talking about um, all those years ago so that, that, that process which uh, many many sociologists and um, political scientists have looked at the process of globalisation process of corporate integration uh, undeniably happened, we can think about what the significance of that is, but undeniably that's happened in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. And uh, Hugh Compton, uh, who I'm quoting here, goes on to talk about the core dominance of TNCs in general, leading to the the development of a distinctive core policy views that have become the orthodoxy in mainstream business organisations. And This is a theme I'm going to come back to at the end of the lecture. Uh, so assuming Ian doesn't tell I've got to stop too soon. A global corporate establishment that is not formally organised but does have shared policy views, spokespeople, the business organisations dominated by core TNCs and given their shared policy views, quite possibly, he says, a tendency to take concerted action in relation to governments and other public authorities. Now he's given a small conjecture there because it's not based on that paper that he's, he's uh, discussing. I would say a little bit about uh, the tendency to take concerted action uh, in the course of the rest of the talk. So I, w- I want to, st- to start with that as the, as the frame, that there's a, a much more integrated network of corporate control than there was in, in Mills's time. And I want to go back then to before Mills's time and talk about, this is where uh, someone said today in the department, are you here, about disemboweled uh, elites, I'm not talking about disemboweled elites, but disembedded elites. So, disembedded refers to the degree of separation between the economy and other social institutions. In modern capitalist economies, this is a quote from Craig Calhoun, uh, modern capitalist economies were said to be disembedded and thus to be interpretable in terms of market rationality. Pre-modern economies are embedded in other social institutions and subject to other logics of reciprocity or redistribution. Uh, this is a, an argument made by Polanyi, Polanyi in 1944, and ar- a book um, published just before the end of the Second World War, and, ignored at the time, but became a reference point for much um, sociological writing, but also for economic history and uh, uh, a certain strand of economic writing. And this is how Polanyi puts it himself. He talks about the rise of the market, meaning no less than the running of society, as an adjunct to the market. Instead of the economy being embedded in social relations, social relations are embedded in the economic system. This is the meaning of the familiar assertion that a market economy can function only in a market society, now, I think there's much to be learned from Polanyi, and uh, obviously there's a lot of discussion about his work. Most of it uh, takes place at the level of of social relations. So that, um, uh, people will talk about the way in which the economy is, is embedded or disembedded, and I, I, I don't want to do that. I'm not criticising that, but I don't want to do that. Instead, I want to examine uh, the question of disembedding at the level not just of social relations, but at the level of individuals and groups within social relations. To think about the extent to which elites themselves can be disembedded from uh, the political system and reembedded in the economic system. So I'm, I'm saying we can think about the disembedding of economic and political elites from the organised compromise of social democracy, uh, r- roughly up until 1979-1980, as we all know, and the re-embedding in institutions of market governance, which are created uh, as a result of the transformation from social democracy to what came after it. And what came after it uh, is, of course, neoliberalism. This has been described, I think, very well by Janine uh, Weddell in her book Shadow Elite, a uh, very interesting book. Uh, Janine's work starts off, she's an anthropologist, started off doing work in the Eastern Bloc before the world comes down and then after in, in the... Uh, Transformation or restoration of capitalism uh, in the East, depending on your point of view, whether you believe in a degenerated worker state or whatever that was. And she talks about the creation of a shadow elite who are distant from the formal mechanisms of political accountability in liberal democracy. She doesn't really um, conceive of this as being something to do with neoliberalism, but I think one can argue that it should be put in that kind of frame. So she talks about the ways in which uh, leading figures in the power elite uh, slip the noose or slip from uh, traditional conceptions of uh, accountability and they, they, they have so many roles, that they, that they cycle through um, uh, that it's impossible for the system uh, traditional liberal democratic system to start to keep to, mo- to keep monitoring and uh, an eye on what kinds of relationships they've got because manoeuvrings are beyond the traditional mechanisms of accountability. They play multiple overlapping, not fully disclosed roles. They have people, they have their people and work themselves individually as government advisors, think tankers, consultants to business. They appear in the media. It's very difficult to know who exactly they represent. Yeah. So, pretty good representation, I think, of, of quite a lot of public life now. And she, she talks in particular in the book about uh, the neocons, the cabal who helped to take us to war in Iraq. Uh, and she does a little bit of light network analysis on that and talks about the neocon core and the different kinds of, of uh, uh, think tanks and policy action groups and p- policy planning groups that, were, that enabled people to, to uh, move forward a, a particular policy against the uh, interests and uh, perceptions of the traditional foreign policy elite uh, in the US and in the UK, of course. When information is supposedly of and for government and it's in private hands, it's not just that government of and isn't kept in a loop. The information and the power it was with it can be used to serve private agendas with the risk of corporate and private players influencing policy to suit those agendas. Far more insidious than simply a contractor being hired to provide food service or, or security assistance. Contractors now carrying carrying out what are known as inherently governmental functions, work so fundamental that only Federal workers should conduct it. So I think that the the notion of disembedding can be applied to to the shadow elite, to the notion of the shadow elite. The notion that shadow elites remove or insulate themselves from previously existing forms of democratic accountability, however problematic they were. And I think we should remember that that, uh, they were problematic Uh, previously. The existing forms were regarded somewhat critically by radical social theorists. Uh, And this is the only time that we have in the lecture a member of the Miliband family on the slides. Here's um, Ralph from 1982 in his book Capitalist Democracy in Britain, talking about the system before neoliberalism. The political system is commonly called democratic, and the notion that Britain is a democracy is taken as a truth too obvious to be seriously challenged. This begs many large questions. If it's defined in terms of popular participation, do you remember that? In the determination of policy and popular control over the conduct of affairs, then the British political system is from is far from democratic. Democratic claims and political reality do not truly match. And that's before neoliberalism, right? So let's be let's remember the, the paradise when there was democratic accountability. Uh, could be viewed in a variety of ways. Neoliberalism, I think this is a, as good a definition as any of neoliberalism. The doctrine that market exchange is an ethic in itself capable of acting as a guide for all human action. I think it's a good definition because it says that uh, neoliberalism is a set of ideas. It's not a set of practices. It's not a particular society. It's not that you described as a society as being neoliberal because there can be a distinction, a distinction between ideas and practice. So when the neoliberals say, we need to roll back the state, we need to bring in market mechanisms which are much more effective and efficient, and when that doesn't happen, sometimes people say, well that's not neoliberalism, they didn't manage to shrink the state, the, the, uh, the investment of GDP and public spending went up uh, during the Thatcher period. Well, you, you remind, we remind ourselves, neoliberalism is an ideology which, which, which pursues a particular set of policies which have have a relationship to interests, not just transparently to some kind of economic analysis which might be or might not be correct. So we can talk about actually existing neoliberalism, what neoliberalism is in practice on the ground, but neoliberalism itself is a doctrine, a doctrine that market exchange in itself is capable of acting as a guide for all human action. It fosters an ongoing process of transformation which disembeds policy networks from politics and reconfigures them, creating new relationships between the state, the public and private interests. A process which we've, I think, uh, I would would certainly argue seen uh, in spades in in the UK in the last 40 years. It leads to a decline in political participation, convergence of parties towards the market, the increased role of corporations directly in policy and think tanks and lobbyists, the policy intermediaries that that arise as a result and to, to enable the process. In a phrase, the disembedding of the power elite. It leads to an enhanced role for corporate political agency. It's a political project of uh, corporate agency. It's the move, as some have said, to post-democracy or to market-driven politics. Consistent, I would argue, all with the notion of disembedding of elites. And I want to talk about this. Uh, in relation to three areas of policy communications. I could have talked about other areas, no doubt you might have wanted me to, but I'm going to talk about these three areas of policy communications as being areas of disembedding. And I want to sh- just to, sh- to share with you some stuff on this uh, uh, to, make the ar- to try and make the argument that this uh, this shows disembedding processes at work. And we're going to go through these um, in order. Lobbying. Now, People know what lobbying is, I guess, but it's not a really very clear term. It's, it's even there's even some dispute, although uh, not real dispute, over where the term comes from. Which lobby we're talking about? Was it the hotel in Washington DC? Is it the lobby in the House of Commons? But lobbying is the attempt, I would say, by uh, by organised interests to influence policy and decision making of government and other similar institutions. It flourishes in liberal democratic systems, operating forms of representative democracy. In certain historical conditions, people say, it's like the the sociological thesis of modernisation, that lobbying's always there, or it's something which always happens. Well, it's not. Lobbying only exists in particular places, at particular times, for particular reasons. There was no lobbying industry to speak of before neoliberalism. There was some lobbying consultancy, and if you want, you can go back and look at the whole history of it, in a a century spin where we look back at the genesis of lobbying and the PR industry back in the early 20th century. But lobbying does not and could not flourish in systems operating the principles of direct democracy. Where political decisions are taken by the populace, lobbying can't exert uh, an effort because it's it's about exerting direct influence on decision makers, bypassing processes of formal democracy. and you can see in that way that that's partly about disembedding of the policy process. Let me say a little bit about communications. Communication is core to lobbying. It's a, lobbying is a process of policy communication, not just a process of policy. It can be described as pro- disembedded or private elite communication. There are uh, ways in which lobbyists insulate decision makers from democracy. That they conduct private circuits of communication with decision makers which people can sometimes listen into but can't really perform or become part of the conversation. It's a mechanism for and a product of disembedding. Now, let's remember a little history. First time is tragedy and the second time is farce. Does anyone watch popular television? The Hamiltons are currently... Don't know quite far down the list of celebrities, but they, that was one of the biggest uh, loving scandals. One of the key reasons, which they led the Tory, Tory the phenomenon, which led the Tories to be labelled as a party of sleaze, leading to that bright new day when Tony Blair was elected in nineteen ninety-seven, when things could only get better. Remember that? And that was the first Cash for Questions affair in nineteen ninety-four, triggered by the revelations revoli- uh, that uh, Mohammed Al Fayed had paid. Um, Neil Hamilton and the other guy who we can't remember because he, he put his hands up and said I was guilty uh, uh, for to ask questions in Parliament. And when you look back at that, that kind of lobbying, uh, uh, which happened as a, res- a result of the huge rise in lobbying in the 1980s, but when you look back at the amateurishness of that, with the scandals that you've seen recently, we really have come a long way. And then of course in 1998, a year after things could only get better. Um, It transpired they couldn't necessarily only get better. We had the Lobbygate scandal, Cash for Access, with a sting operation by the Observer, and then subsequently another one in Scotland, which led to a similar sort of of scandal. The the use of uh, all-party groups for corporate uh, influence in Parliament in 2005 and 2007, for the first time in a generation, a select committee in the UK did a proper inquiry into lobbying, uh, which I gave evidence to, in January uh, January 2007. And the result of that was that, for the first time ever, a a select committee in the UK um, declared in its report, unanimously, that there should be a statutory register of lobbyists. And that's what led to the whole uh, process leading up to the eventual enactment of the lobbying register uh, earlier this year by the the coalition government. Uh, A terrible register, a terrible piece of legislation but something on the statute book for the first time. Uh, and then we have, just remembering this, David Cameron's speech on uh, lobbying being the next political scandal waiting to happen. And then uh, a couple of weeks later, you had the sting on Stephen Byers, Jeff Hoon, Patricia Hewitt, where Patricia Hewitt talked about the necessity in, uh, of using think tanks for lobbying. And was it, was it uh, Hoon who said, no, it was Byers, wasn't it? He said it was a taxi for hire. And then this, the, the succession of scandals. These are only some of them. The most famous ones: uh, Liam Fox, Peter Cruddas, the Conservative Party um, uh, treasurer, the uh, ex-Conservative minister paid to lobby for tax havens, uh, lobbyists linked donations to the to- Tories, uh, generals for hire. Patrick Mercer, uh, two peers suspended, one resigns. This is from 2010 to 2013, leading eventually to the the, uh, enactment of the lobbying legislation which means that we will now have a lobbying register which will probably catch about 1% of meetings with ministers and civil servants because it's so rubbish but you don't want to know that just now I just want to give you a couple of visual representations of what this all means these kinds of scandals are really just when uh, the kinds of routine relationships that now exist in Whitehall and Westminster become uh, newsworthy because it's possible to show someone uh, talking out of turn or some breach of some rule. But actually most policy issues with this controversy, you'll find a whole series of uh, lobby consultancies and lobby groups uh, probably funded by, uh, run by the lobby consultancies and funded by the the corporations, in this case British uh, British Airways and uh, British Airports Authority, and their connections with, in this, in this case, this is before the Tories come into power, with the Labour, Labour Party, uh, but and the people who cycle through these different groups, so the City PR firm, the Freedom to Fly group, the connections they have with the Labour Party, and you can represent these visually in a way which, which it hopefully makes it, makes it makes a little bit more sense about how those networks can can operate. <coughs> Similar way, you can do the same for the private healthcare network. Uh, this is one we did uh, a couple of years ago, where you can see the, the black ovals are the uh, companies bidding to get into the English and Wealth uh, Health Service, uh, not in Scotland, I should remind you. The grey squares are the think tanks, including the centre-left think tanks like the King's Fund, now entirely a neoliberal institution, uh, and then the Centre for Policy Studies, the, the um, the signature Thatcherite uh, think tank set up by Keith Joseph and Margaret Thatcher. Reform, Policy Exchange, one of the new wave of uh, conservative think tanks in 2020 Health. All of whom are funded by the same corporations to try and push through uh, policy changes, which they've now managed to do, as, as we all know. And then the connections between these people and the government, uh, of both of Tony Blair and of uh, David Cameron, and Liz Lansley, who was then the... Uh, the uh, Health Minister. So, so the way in which the people s- cycle through these jobs, really rem- reminiscent of this notion of uh, of a shadow elite that um, that uh, Janine Weddle talks about, that no effective control over that, no effective means of monitoring that, no regulations which can prevent it. The only thing we have in, in this country is a, is a thing called a COBA, the Advisory Committee, uh, on business appointments, which is so bad that uh, everybody in uh, Westminster thinks it should be abolished, including the Public Administration Select Committee, which reported on it just last year. So no, no real means for us to keep track of this. Our, our, our systems of regulation are way behind the actual relationships between uh, these uh, business interests and the way in which they can then buy up um, ex-ministers, like, for example, Patricia Hewitt over there working for Spire Healthcare. So in lobbying you see disembedded decision-making, the rise of the lobbying industry, a private intermediary disembedding the policy process, privatising it to a, a narrower range of people, an increasing in the revolving door between corporate interests in particular, but also um, lobbying uh, corporations and think tanks. Structural conflicts of interest for policy-related actors, recognised by by everybody who, who looks at the, um, the phenomenon, uh, Quite good work done by the OECD on this, um, perhaps surprisingly, including ministers, civil servants, elected representatives, policy intermediaries, scientists and other experts. And I'll maybe mention a little bit more about science and expertise later on. Institutional corruption, this is not about individuals being paid bungs which are corrupt, which are bribes, although I'm I'm not saying that I would rule that out. I'm saying that this is a set, a set of institutional processes which have, which have corrupted policy processes, in much in the way that the concept of institutional racism explains uh, much, not all, of um, the, the conduct of the Metropolitan Police as um, the first report puts so it. This is an institutional problem. It requires an institutional solution rather than banging up a few dodgy peers or civil servants. Think tanks. I give you this brother dry stuff from political science, from uh, Diane Stone, because Diane Stone, perhaps the doyen of uh, think tank studies and political science, but uh, this is a quite reasonably recent article where she talks about the three things that think tanks are supposed to do. They're supposed to act as bridges to build policy, they're supposed to serve the public interest, and they're supposed to be uh, disinterested research institutes, not political partisans or lobbyists. And she goes on to talk (laughs) in, in the quote there about that not really being the case, that think tanks engage in many activities that substantially diminish, diminish the validity of these discourses. Now, uh, caveat, think tanks aren't the same everywhere. There are left-wing think tanks, even in this country. Uh, the way in which think tanks are funded varies by country. In Germany, for example, the political parties are levied, um, so you have um, think tanks which are not just centre-left, but actual left think tanks. So uh, not the same everywhere. But nevertheless, we do see um, uh, a structural change in the way in which uh, think tanks in, uh, a rise in the number of think tanks, an increase in the amount of money being put into think tanks from conservative foundations and businesses, and uh, as a result I think what you see is the, the privatisation of policy making away from the traditional sources of policy advice which might include he says laughingly, us academics and to, towards the, the controlling of policy dis- discussion and debate uh, in privately funded uh, enclaves. That's what think tanks it seems to me uh, in general are for not the caveats. And of course this comes from the intellectual fight back against embedding uh, the uh, Walter Lippmann colloque uh, in 1938 in Paris reconvened in 1947 after the Second World War uh, on the slopes of Mont Pelerin in Switzerland, leading to the creation of the Mont Pelerin Society, a Society of Economists largely, but then uh, expanding um, to include people from other disciplines, which is created to discuss the state and possible fate of liberalism in its classical sense and thinking and practice. Mont Mont Pelerin, as people will know who have read the histories, is crucial to, the, to understanding the rise of neoliberalism. We can, we can argue about why neoliberalism was successful, um, whether uh, that the, it's the development of ideas or um, the question of, the, of uh, the crisis of capitalism in 1974. Uh, I don't want to get into that. But, but nevertheless, uh, whatever you, what view you take on that, the Montpellier society is a, a, a crucial part of that process, which results, in the end, in the capture of state power um, when uh, in, well in Chile first, but then in, uh, in the UK and the US in 1780, uh, led of course by Friedrich von Hayek, who declared, we must make the building of a free society once more an intellectual adventure, a deed of courage. And of course, it's, well, everyone knows this, right? He, the strategy was not to convince the public, but to convince the intellectuals who were perceived as being won over by socialism. Certainly, Fabianism was popular. Uh, under social democracy. Once the more active part of intellectuals have been converted to a set of beliefs, the process by which these become generally accepted is almost automatic and Mm -hmm. irresistible. Now, we can query whether that's true or not, I don't think it is, but that's what his idea was. And the process, of course, for doing that was you set up think tanks. He met the uh, Anthony Fisher, who uh, was a uh, battery farmer, as you will no doubt know, Battery far- He int- introduced battery farming of chickens uh, from the US. Uh, he wanted to stand for the Conservative Party, famously met Hayek, and Hayek said, no, no, we do it through the intellectuals, we will set up think tanks. And he then, of course, m- uh, decided that his role, declared his role would be to litter the world with free market think tanks. And that's what he did. He set up the Atlas. Well, I don't need to tell you that story, right? And here's one example of that, just one example, is the Stockholm Network, set up by by, um, Rick Nye, uh, on the right there, and by Helen Disney, at the bottom there, promotes market-oriented reform. It's linked to the US Heritage Foundation, funded by Pfizer, the pharmaceutical company, one of the key funders. uh, In places, they talk about themselves being anarcho-capitalists, and uh, that we should kill all politicians. Not every place, they don't say that, to be fair. And they adopt they also they language the language and interests of corporate donors, and that's led to them falling out with some of their members. And when I say it's a, me- a network, it's actually a company, which is also a think tank, which also is a network of think tanks. It uh, has a, uh, a number of different members, uh, including uh, someone who worked there, was Susie Squire of the Stockholm Network. This is her dancing at the Capitalist Ball in Brussels in 2007. Later to join the Taxpayers' Alliance, the Conservative Party, and she's now Director of Communications of the Conservative party. Uh, uh, Capitalist Ball is a t- tremendous occasion, you should try and go. And the St- Stockholm Network, uh, uh, you can see here in graphical form, it's the yellow square. All, all the black dots are members of the Stockholm Network. So it's 120 think tanks across Europe. Uh, and then you, this diagram shows you the interlocks between the Stockholm Network and the Atlas Economic Research Foundation, which is the thing that anti Fisher set up, which again has over 100 members all around the world, littering the world with free market think tanks. The Economic Freedom Network, uh, based in Canada, less um, members, and the European Ideas Network, quite new things up at the European level. And you can see that in the centre here are think tanks, which are members of more than one of these networks. Now this is not an exhaustive representation of conservative think tanks in Europe and the rest of the world. Uh, It's simply four networks, there are many more, Uh, but it does show you that this is quite a phenomenon. Uh, A phenomenon we, I think, really need to understand much better than we do. And uh, in honour of um, Nigel Lawson coming to speak at the, the campus yesterday, I thought we should mention the think tank webs about particular issues. This is the think tank web around about climate. Uh, I I I suppose you're not going to be able to read all these names, right? But in the centre here is the Koch-controlled foundations. That's the foundations controlled by the Koch brothers, the uh, US energy um, business people. And you can also see these other um, pale-coloured ones are are the funding agencies which fund climate denial, think tanks and lobby groups. So the Walton Family Foundation from uh, uh, Walmart, uh, of course, on done in this country. Uh, then these other famous f- uh, f- uh, foundations, for those of us who are anarchy anor- enough to know about these things, the London Harry Bradley, the John Olin Escape Foundations, and also other funders up here, Philip Morris, the tobacco company, and ExxonMobil, of course, uh, famously funding uh, climate denial think tanks. This is quite a web of activities. And these are the, ki- this kind of diagram has only been produced recently when it became apparent that the Koch brothers were such a significant Uh, played such a significant role in climate uh, denial uh, funding and uh, other conservative causes. So So what what you've got here is is what's called a dark money web. Here's just a graphic from Open Secrets about the way in which the money is secretly channeled to the think tanks. When we talk about the dark money web, what we're talking about is the creation in particular of the uh, uh, donor advised trusts the two most famous ones in, ter- in currently current debate are the donor's trust and the linked donor's capital fund linked in the sense that they've got the same directors and these are donor advised in the sense that donors give money to the trusts and they say to the trust I want this to go to climate denial work or to whipping up fear against Muslims. see I mentioned the Muslim see uh, or wherever and you will make sure that it goes there Even if I die, and even if my children are radicals, and they wanted to go to Greenpeace, you'll not let that happen. So it's a way of them maintaining down through the generations that this money will be used for conservative purposes, and it's a way of maintaining that the the people who fund the donors' trust are not named. So we don't know where the money comes from for the donors' trust. We know where it goes to because they have to declare it in their IRS forms. And here's the climate denial work, I mean, climate denial is the place that we found out the most about this. This is how we discovered the donors' Trust and uh, the donors' Capital Fund. And you can see, along the bottom there, Exxon, which until about five years ago, Greenpeace was producing these diagrams showing that Exxon was funding all climate denial work. I and mean, we just didn't know that there was this huge amount of other work. And uh, Exxon were attacked by um, the Royal Society and uh, the elites in uh, British science policy and by many others. And their, their funding of um, climate denial works declines. You can see that from two thousand and five, six. Uh, the Koch Foundations themselves increased quite dramatically. Work on climate, and then the green is the donors trust. There, this dark money, where we don't know where it's come from. Now, dark money in the UK. I, I just want to spend a little bit of time on this because it's been annoying me recently. The IEA, one, one of the first think tanks in the UK, created as a result of Hayek and the Mont Pelerin Society, 1955. Of course, it, we, we know now, due to Anna and Gary's work and everyone else over there, they've taken money from the tobacco industry since 1963. They've also had, in the last, between 2004 and 2010, $215,000 from the Donors Trust. Don't know where that comes from. We don't know if that's for climate work or for other things. Could be either. But we also know, that this is data I just found recently, uh, that the, cha- the Charity Commission in the UK shows that the Garfield Western Foundation gave £100,000 to, to the IA and the uh, MJC Stone Charitable Trust gave them £50,000 between 2004 and 2011. Now we know that from Charity Commission records and if you, in case you want to know this, this is food money and sugar money, right? Uh, uh, it's not clear what it's for because although we know that money's gone, we don't know what projects it's for, or if it's membership fees or what, uh, because the uh, IEA has a policy of what it calls donor confidentiality. Among the other donors is, uh, I thought Graham would like this, it's the Institute for Policy Research, not the one at Bath, <laughs> which is a conservative foundation which is very obscure, no one's ever heard of it. It's described some places as a think tank, but it's not a think tank. It's a means for cycling dark money in the UK. Uh, there's, more, there's more of them than just the IPR, there's others. In this ca- particular case, um, it acts like the Donors Trust because it. although you can tell where the money goes, this is what this table shows, you can't tell where the money comes from. It doesn't re- reveal that information. So sometimes what we find, when you check back through the Charity Commission records, that sometimes, for example, the, the, Gary, the Garfield Western Foundation also gives money to the IPR, which then is given to other think tanks. But, so you're not clear if you find out the name of an organisation that's given to IPR what the money's for and what, how much of this money which goes out relates to the money that's come in. And you can see, I'm not going to go through this, but IPR funds uh, neoliberal think tanks. In particular, it funds the Centre for Policy Studies to the tune of 150000 a year, up to 250000 a year and Open Europe, which is a kind of Eurosceptic, neocon, once war with Iran, tomorrow kind of organisation. Quite a lot of money there. And various other think tanks, the Politea, uh Eurofacts and Global Britain, the European Policy Forum, uh, etc. All these neoliberal or neoconservative or Eurosceptic uh, organisations. Now, we're just at the beginning of finding out this stuff, we're trying to find a way of crunch the huge numbers of terabytes of data which are held by the Charity Commission, which are not machine-readable. Uh, and so that's, this is uh, and at the beginning of trying to find out much more about the funding of these organisations. Um, but I thought I would share that with you just now, that there's a dark money web in the UK which we'll probably be able to find out a bit more about. Now, so I, I could have said a lot more about science, but I'm only going to say this much. Uh, talk about disembedding science. Is science being, disembed- being disembedded? Well, the funding of think tanks and lobby groups to create doubt in the case of climate and also uh, in the case of the I.A. and many other uh, neoliberal think tanks to create doubt um, where there isn't any in science about uh, the risk of the tobacco, of alcohol, of food, sometimes of chemicals uh, uh, and arguably in other areas where there's much more contest in the science uh, where they the, the corporate money is it, played into that debate uh, um, that's, that is a significant issue I think and uh, does make a difference to the, the, the ability or the self-confidence or just the uh, bravery of policy elites to take decisions which might help public health as we've seen with the cancellation of pre packs and the reversal of policy on minimum unit pricing uh, in the UK in, in recent months. Then there's our, there are coordinated attacks on inconvenient science and scientists by corporations and by their lobby groups, which often don't disclose the money that they're getting from the corporations. There's the direct corporate funding of science, meaning that the balance of uh, funding of, sort of science has changed in favour of the, the private sector, and also meaning that uh, science can, as a result, be biased. Now, that's a can, not is, but the, the literature on that, uh, something like 15 studies now, which has been done, which, which compares funding source with outcomes, uh, all point to the possibility of corporate funding biasing the outcomes of science. And of course, the science studies which are done by corporations which don't come up with the desired results, sometimes are not published, and there's a big campaign in relation especially to randomised control trials and, and um, uh, pharmaceuticals to get all those trials registered. They're not still. And then there's the privatisation of science I give you here. This is the New York Times from three days ago. Billionaires with big ideas of privatising American science. Now you don't have to go along with all that, but the, these, the, these are, this is part of the, 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 uh, the sort of evidence that one would use to, to ask questions about whether science is being disembedded. And the last one I can't go without mentioning, Christopher Snowden, the Head of Lifestyle Economics uh, at the Institute for Economic Affairs, who wrote this uh, frankly dishonest pamphlet on sock puppets, talking about the ways in which uh, environmental groups and health pressure groups and indeed academic departments like the Department of Health here at Bath are funded by uh, uh, governments uh, to lobby government for uh, policies which are, uh, which are regarded by the IEA as being contrary to the market ethos that we should be pursuing. So, and again, another means for disembedding science, I would say. Okay, so think tanks can and do have concrete influences on policy. The channels of communication for corporations of for state private networks, directly funded by the corporate sector, vehicles for displacing embedded institutions of knowledge production, such as higher education and science. So I think that's the, cru- the most crucial concrete impact of think tanks regardless of the particular things that particular think tanks do. And indeed, indeed regardless of of whether it's sometimes the case that think tanks produce decent research, which I'm sure they do sometimes. I can tell you things, times when they haven't. Now, the last thing is policy planning organisations. I Have I got much more time? Good. Right, uh, I was hoping that uh, this guy would be here tonight. He's not. He lives in Bristol. He's uh, an authority on all things Bilderberg. This is um, the Bilderberg Group. Has, has everyone heard about the Bilderberg? Has everyone heard of the Bilderberg Group? Anyone who's not heard of it? Yeah, really? Okay. Bilderberg Group. One of the um, it's a kind of conspiracy theorist wet dream is the Bilderberg Group. This is a, these are the secret meetings to shape the world, as the Daily Mirror has it there. Uh, which has been going on since 1954. It's, a, it's an elite policy planning group, essentially, of which there are a number. I'll talk more about others later. And it's, it's the thing about the Bilderberg Group is that, uh, that uh, it's real. It's a, it's a real organisation which meets regularly, which has uh, members of the elite in politics and economics, uh, and in the media uh, go along to it. And it's, a, it's about trying to come to some kind of consensus, uh, uh, elite consensus on uh, structural issues facing mainly Europe and the US too. It's not. It's not the lizards who are supposed to be taking over the world, right? It's not actually the conspiracy. It's now become much more uh, public. It's now got a website for the first time in the last couple of years. And it now admits where its meetings are going to be. Um, but it's just one of a number of elite policy planning groups which are important in both uh, encouraging elite unity and brokering disagreements uh, and in taking decisions which can then be... Um, uh, Passed back through uh, other elite networks. Another one is the World Economic Forum, I guess much more widely known, much more important now than Bilderberg. Uh, came out of the Trilateral Commission, which you, again you might have heard of, uh, and which meets every year in Davos. Uh, has a, it's currently limited its me- membership to a thousand of the foremost global enterprises. A really a very large organisation, run by a guy who used to be a professor of journalism at Connie's Place at City University. Uh, in London, uh, Adrian, uh, who I know, strangely. Uh, and it's, uh, it invites a variegated range of globalist elites, including members of the scientific community, academics, media leaders, public figures, and various NGOs. Uh, some NGOs go along, and actually, uh, did I say celebrities as well? Uh, lots of politicians. There's uh, good old Ted Heath there, Merkel, Cameron, etc. Uh, politicians are always there, prominently and publicly. That doesn't work very well, do it? That's, a, that's really not very good. Anyhow, the, the, uh, that's supposed to fade out. Um, the point about the, about the World Economic Forum, it seems to me, is that you can, in terms of disembedding, you can think of it as being a business parliament. Uh, so it, rather than politicians taking decisions in parliaments and business trying to influence them, this is business taking decisions, and politicians get to come along for the right just give you that suggestion, if, it's, if we're talking about this disembedding, dis- this is quite a good indication of, of power shifting to corporate organised forum. And of course here's the celebrity f- uh, faction of the disembedded elites, Brangelina and Sharon and... Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, and, and so, you can, uh, so you, you can provide an analysis of this. You know, that, that it's not, this, this is about certain fractions of the celebrity world, the media world, the NGO world, and then, you know, so political and uh, economic elites as well. Here are the main transnational policy planning groups. Uh, we've mentioned the World Economic Forum and uh, we've mentioned Bilderberg, but also the, the Global Compact at the UN, the ERT, the European Roundtable of Industrials, limited to 30 CEOs of the European companies. The Transatlantic Business Dialogue, again, a limited number of uh, CEOs, from half from the, from the EU and half from the US. Trilateral Commission, the International Chamber of Commerce set up in 1919, one of the oldest transnational organisations, etc. These are organisations which are susceptible to analysis. They know who their members are, they can track how they change, they know sometimes a little bit about their budgets, although most of them don't reveal them. Uh, and you can, prov- you can start to do analysis on such things, you know, real analysis. And here's uh, Bill Carroll's work, um, Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who build and who does a lot of work on uh, board interlocks but also has done lots of work on the interlock between board interlocks and transnational policy interlocks and uh, his most recent work shows, this is from 1996, the data political planning uh, organisations here are three times more likely to link corporate cooper- to corporations than the corporations are to link to themselves so uh, as you can see there and the, li- the line of course, the dar- darker the line more links to Europe and North America, Japan not not quite. Most links to these global policy planning groups. And the data changes to 2006, where the concentration uh, policy planning groups 3.0556 to 3.44. So it's, and that's an average of three and a half connections between the, the corporations and the policy planning uh, groups. So you can see that there's a there's a propensity statistically for Policy, the global policy planning groups to link together the transnational corporations. And this is what they say. So it brings us back to the point I was raising at the beginning about the, the uh, connections between the corporations and the, the possibility that they might engage together in concerted action. What stands out is a two orders of magnitude gap between the integration of policy boards with each other and the integration of the most cohesive regional se- segment of corporate boards, which is in Europe. In 2006, the 11 policy boards shared an average of nearly 3.5 members. In the same year, the European corporate boards shared a mean of 0.0362 members. So in this sense, the policy board network provides a hard core of politically active and socially cohesive cadre to the global corporate elite. This hard core is primarily active within, Euro- within European corporate capitalism. Okay, so we, we can show at that kind of level that there is a concentration of interlocks, and I, what I've been talking about for the rest of the lecture really is a concrete illustration of how that works. It's way down in relation to particular issues and particular sorts of policy communications. Okay, so I, I, I'm going to move towards the end now and talk about lobbying think tanks and elite policy planning groups all showing mis- unmistakable signs of processes of disembedding. Um, the market. Replacing policy, ha- politics has been replacing politics for the last 20 years or so. It's a key site of power. The political system is now increasingly a part of the market. And I say that in terms of decision, where decisions are taken, but also in the sense that the market is able to run parts of the political system directly. Citizens increasingly excluded from meaningful involvement and processes of re-embedding will be required if social interests are to be reasserted. Come the glorious day, eh? Research agenda, we need a determined research effort in this area. and There's a huge amount of work to be done. It's difficult to, di- to get some of the data. These organisations are deliberately opaque about where they get their money and what they do, but we can find that data by investigating research, by using the tobacco archives, by using a whole variety of other means. We need to do case studies and focus on particular industries and particular domains, such as, for example, science and the development of policy solutions to guard the evidence base from corruption by disembedding processes. I mean that in two ways. One, the the creation of transparency regimes which are capable of monitoring and enforcing transparency regulations at at all levels, so that's lobbying transparency, transparency of charities and foundations, uh, transparency in science in terms of conflict of interest rules, etc. But also in terms of policy solutions which would put back the control of policy and politics with the people of the country, to some extent at least. move back in that direction. That, that's a tricky and long road, but we can help to come up with those policy solutions uh, and to try and uh, help with the process of, of re-embedding. Otherwise, we are kind of finished, right? Thank you.